Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios in Midtown. It's a beautiful day here in Atlanta. Not such a beautiful day up in Washington, D.C. Braves and Nationals were already postponed. That happened last night. Doubleheader, weather permitting on Sunday. But what we've already seen in this series could give you a few different takeaways already. Number one, Ronald Acuna Jr. If you didn't already have him at the top of your MVP depth chart, well, Shame on you. And Ronald just gave you another example of why you should have, as he made some history on Friday up in D.C., his 40th home run of the year. That puts him in the 40-40 and then some club. That's what I think I'm going to call it at this point. We're going to get into a lot more of this later on because I got all kinds of Ronald Acuna Jr. statistical and historical goodness to get into. But 40-40 is a club that only five men have joined. Ronald Acuna Jr., the first one to do so since 2006 as he hit his 40th home run against the Nationals. And how much more appropriate could it get? A leadoff home run from a man that loves to hit leadoff home runs and a man who's stolen 68 bases this year. That's not just a 40 stolen base season. This is the likes of which we have never seen as far as that club is concerned. When it was founded in 1988, it was just getting to the 40 steals was the hard part. Ronald's been there for a while, a couple of months, it feels like. Just trying to get those home runs going, but the month of September has been awfully kind to Ronald Acuna Jr., and maybe it's just he's been awfully unkind to opposing pitchers. Ten home runs this month now as he hit his 40th of the year, joins that club, 68 stolen bases, easily the most by any member of that group, and those are just one or two of the things that we can say about the season that he's putting together, but all is not necessarily the way that you want it to be for the Braves as we went through this week. Max Freed. Looked great in the opener against the Nationals. Had a recurrence of that blister issue. He landed on the injured list. Charlie Morton lasted exactly one inning in Game 2 of the series. He's dealing with a finger issue. We don't have clarity on that as of yet. The Braves are going to update it on Sunday. MRI was scheduled for Saturday. X-rays negative, but something that was keeping Charlie Morton from being able to continue on the mound. And this is not the time of year. When you're sitting here September 23rd, about a week before, definitely a week before, If you check your calendar, you get to October, which is the most important month of the year on a baseball season. You want to have your two best starting pitchers going in, feeling healthy at the very least. And as I talked about on last week's show, right here on From the Diamond, you want to make sure that health is priority number one. How do you manage that? You can't manage away from injuries. They're going to happen. And the Braves are very familiar with that for a litany of reasons that have been a big part of their story to the 2021 World Series. And we're a big part, unfortunately, of their early departure in last year's postseason. So we're going to talk all about that and uh, you know what to make of it. We're going to hear from Max Fried. We're going to hear from Charlie Morton. Both those guys talked after their starts. I don't know that my level of alarm is at the highest possible level. I've been learning about the DEFCON system a lot by spending too much time on social media. Apparently, the lower the number, the bigger the risk or the bigger the problem. So 
Uh, take that for what you will, but I don't know what your DEFCON level is for the Braves starting rotation, but you knew that health was going to be important. And with the Braves being able to clinch, what, two and a half weeks before the end of the season, you wanted them to be able to work their way into October minus injuries, giving guys a little bit of extra time. And that has been helpful to work through some things, most definitely. But it's a conversation we're going to have to have because pretty soon, October the 7th, that's when the National League Division Series starts. Who's going to be on the mound for the Braves that day? If you'd asked me what, 48 hours ago, I would have said, well, smart money's on Max Fried, and I think it still is. Spencer Strider certainly has a case for that, but if you're lining up your three starters, let's make a bigger point here, and I'll get into this much more later on in the show, but you wanted to have Max Fried, Spencer Strider, and Charlie Morton available to you, and then you were going to figure out your number four. Is that Bryce Elder? Does Kyle Wright show you enough over the final, what, a couple of starts that he has to factor into that? Do the Braves just get creative with how they're going to fill that void? We'll find out. They may have to get creative, and that's, the, I think, kind of the scary proposition if things don't, I guess, correct themselves over the next uh, 10 or so days. But be that as it may, we've got a lot to get into on the pitching staff side of things. And, of course, we're going to be talking about Ron Lacuna Jr. I've got all kinds of good stuff that I've gathered up uh, just to let you know that this has not just been an MVP caliber season for Ron Lacuna Jr. He should be the MVP. It should be unanimous at this point. I don't really think there's too much of a debate left to be had here. If there was, Ron Lacuna Jr. went ahead and removed all doubt with the month that he has had here in September. But it's a historic season. A season the likes of which we may never see again. When you think about all of the different columns that Ron Lacuna Jr. is compiling stats in and all of the different things that he is doing at a level to which we just haven't seen anybody do it ever before. In baseball, you might know this. We like our numbers. We like our history, our nostalgia, all those things that come with it. Usually they're all tied together. Ron Lacuna Jr. is delivering a season in which I think that you'll be able to talk about for a very long time if you're a Braves fan. And you might get sick of hearing about if you're a fan of another team, but that doesn't take away from the luster that is Ron Lacuna Jr.'s 2023 season and his assault on an MVP award, which I think would be very, very much earned. And looking back over this week for the Braves, I mean, as we talked about the clinching that happened in Philadelphia what week before last, you felt like, okay, well, that's the first big step. They'd already clinched their postseason berth with the best record in baseball. That was you know, bound to happen. But then what was going to happen over the final couple of weeks? I mentioned you might want to rest a few regulars, maybe skip a start here or there, maybe manage your bullpen a little bit differently so the guys don't get burned out on the road to October. But then all of a sudden you get swept by the Miami Marlins. Maybe you can call that the post-clinching hangover. Then you come home and lose two out of three to the Philadelphia Phillies. So the Braves needed kind of a get-right up in Washington. I feel like they've gotten that, at least offensively speaking, last couple of days. But uh, postponed on Saturday, doubleheader on Sunday. Would have loved to have not heard the word doubleheader again until 2024. Uh, but the Braves are going to have to apparently deal with that. And again, that's weather permitting up in D.C. as well. But Kyle Wright, Spencer Strider is supposed to throw in those two games, according to the Braves' plans. But they needed to get themselves you know, back on track. You don't necessarily have to go on a long winning streak heading into the postseason. You'll take them anytime you can get them. But you just want to be playing a consistent brand of baseball, and it just kind of felt like things had gotten a little bit wonky for the Braves for about a week or so after clinching the National League East. But as we talked about you know, with the starting rotation, that's been a big reason, I think, that the month of September has been so uneven for this club. We have seen Max Fried come back and be a part of the plans, but he's already missed one start with a blister, and now he's landed on the 15-day injured list. So for all intents and purposes, he is skipping his final start of the season in lieu of getting ready for October, getting treatment on the blister. He'll continue throwing, doing the things that he needs to do. But the Charlie Morton thing kind of throws a wrench in the works, depending on what the severity of that injury is. It's just the kind of scenarios you didn't want to have to walk yourself through. I think Spencer Strider has been 
very solid as we have gone through the final month of the season. I don't know that necessarily he's going to be able to slam dunk the Cy Young Award and what should be maybe two more starts for him. But if he gets to 20 wins, breaks the Braves record in strikeouts, and leads all of Major League Baseball in punch outs, he's going to have a pretty compelling case. And he's exactly the kind of pitcher that you want to have gassed up and ready for October. And that was a question mark for the Braves a year ago. Because you have to remember that Spencer Strider was dealing uh, with an oblique injury that had caused him to miss some time heading into that. So these things can happen. And the Braves got to work their way around it. And if you think about 2021 and that World Series, which I don't know, I feel like Braves fans still think about that quite a bit. You had to throw Tucker Davidson and Dylan Lee in starting pitching roles, and you still beat the Astros in six games and won the World Series. So when I tell you that crazy things can happen to October, they're not always bad. Sometimes you just run through a scenario, and by sheer will or sheer luck or a combination of the two and talent, you got to throw talent in there, you figure out a way to win a baseball game, and that's what the Braves are going to try to do by hook or by crook. Uh, so the Braves are going to close out their season here over the next week, and then what's it going to look like in October? We'll talk a little bit about what the postseason roster decisions could be for the Braves in the bullpen as we go on in the show. I'd be remiss not to remind you, of course, to subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. If you're new here, Saturdays on 92.9 The Game is where you can find it. You can also connect with me on social media, at Grant McCauley is where you can find me on X. I guess that's what we're going to call it now. Instagram as well. Most social media platforms, at Grant McCauley and at From the Diamond. You can like the show on Facebook as well, and you can find links to all of those things at fromthediamond.com, and you can always find the show on the Odyssey app as well. So lots of different ways to connect with the show. Coming up a little bit later, we are going to hear from Max Reed and Charlie Morton after their starts, as I mentioned. We'll talk about the return of Jesse Chavez. That's a pretty big deal, I think, possibly, for this Braves bullpen. Just a way to maybe just stabilize some things. You're not asking Jesse Chavez to come in and throw all the innings, but if he's able to do what he did in his comeback, which was two and a third scoreless, at some point along the way in the road to and through October, you'll be pretty happy to have Jesse Chavez back in that mix. And by the way, he was having a pretty darn good season as well. But what is the Atlanta bullpen going to look like come October? We know it's going to be asked to do a lot. We learned that in 2021. But who's going to be able to help out? And what decisions do the Braves have to make to close out that group? Also going to talk to uh, Jason Foster about some of these recent Braves on-field trends. I mentioned that the clinching of the division against the Phillies that happened uh, about a week and a half ago, that was a very high note. But since then, I think people have had a lot of questions about the consistent brand of baseball that the Braves have been playing, or the inconsistent brand, I should say. Some of the troubles in the bullpen. Occasionally, the offense has an off night. And, of course, the starting rotation has not been able to post the number of innings that you've needed time in and time out this month. Jason's going to talk to me about that and kind of the historical precedent of what a club needs to be playing like heading into October. Does it matter if you go in in a little bit of a tailspin? I mean, Conventional wisdom would say, yes, you'd like to go in feeling that you're a little bit more consistent or at least playing the level that you want to. Or does it matter if you go in on a big winning streak? Does that necessarily predicate that you're going to win it all? Well, it turns out the research says it may matter, but then again, it might not matter at all. I'm going to talk to Jason a lot about that. We'll talk, of course, about Ron Lacuna Jr., this MVP caliber season he's putting together. And I'm going to be joined by Matt Snyder of CBS Sports a little bit later because while the National League East might be a race that has been over for a while, while the Braves may have punched their postseason ticket and looking for best record in all of baseball and home field advantage throughout the playoffs, there are some teams out there just trying to make their way in. Things are a little bit wild in the American League wildcard race. Things are a little bit crazy in the National League wildcard race, but it almost seems like somebody has to get in, but nobody can decide who it's going to be, and not necessarily in a good way. Some clubs are playing some pretty bad baseball at a time in which they need to be maybe putting their best foot forward. I'll talk to Matt Snyder about all of that and much more as we continue. Got a lot to get to on today's show, and we'll be getting to all of it as we go along. But 
we have to start with the week that was in Braves baseball. The Ron Lacuna Jr. show is in full effect. I'll dig into the numbers, tell you about the MVP season, the history-making season of the Braves' superstar right fielder. That's coming your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Grant McCauley live from the Kia Studios on a Saturday afternoon. The Atlanta Braves have the day off. They didn't plan it that way, but some weather made it that way up in Washington, D.C., so they will have a doubleheader against the Nationals on Sunday, which gives us, I guess, uh, what is it, center stage, the main event, whatever we want to call it. As far as our baseball talk and our Braves discussion, which I always love having with you here, you'll catch the show most of the time here for the next what month or so, now that we're in football season, on Saturday afternoons. And, of course, we'll have all kinds of coverage for you to and through the playoffs for the Braves, so make sure you're sticking with me and 92.9 The Game right here throughout what we hope will be a very fun month of October. And I can tell you this, I can confirm this, because I've watched it with my own two eyes all season long. It has been a very fun season for Ronald Acuna Jr., and it got a little bit more fun on Friday night up in Washington. As we know, Ronald Acuna Jr. has been chasing the 40-40 club. He is well over the threshold in stolen bases. And trust me, I see all the interactions on social media. Yes, I know it's more than just 40-40 for Ronald Acuna Jr. But that was the pre-established club. He's opening a new one. He's got his own VIP room, for crying out loud. And it could be getting even better, as we know. With a couple more stolen bases, he could get to 70. But he needed to get to the 40 homers. And he did it in fine fashion to start the game on Friday night against the Nationals and Patrick Corbin. Take a listen. Hammered. Left field. Gone! Ronald Acuna, another milestone in a truly historic season. 40 home runs. That is Brandon Gaughan, the voice of the Braves on Bally Sports. And I wanted to really hit on something that he pointed out immediately in that home run call. And it's a historic season for Ronald Acuna Jr. It's not just, hey, this is a guy that could win the MVP because he's having a career year. This has been a history-making campaign for Ronald. And what an appropriate way to join the 40-40 club, as I've said. It, a leadoff home run, go figure. 34 of those in his young career and quite a few miles left to travel. Maybe he'll make a push towards Ricky Henderson. I believe the all-time record is 81. He's about halfway there at the age of 25. I'd say the odds are pretty good if he keeps hitting leadoff. But we'll see. We'll get into all that. A little bit later, we'll let his career actually play out. But the MVP debate that we opened the month of September with was, I don't know, it, it was getting a little bit feisty, getting a little bit spicy online as well. Was it, you know, the versatility of Mookie Betts plus the historic August that he put together? Was that going to really push him past Ronald Acuna Jr. for MVP of the National League? Let me go ahead and throw this out there as I have each and every week. Mookie Betts is having a great year, and I would love to have him on any baseball team that I'm putting together. But what Ronald Acuna Jr. has done, from day one of this season, all the way through this fast and furious finish that he's putting on here in September, I feel like that consistency, that impact player profile, and his ability to drive the best lineup in all of baseball, that has got to be you know, huge, huge selling points as far as an MVP debate is concerned. And again, I feel like the debate has pretty much been put to rest. It doesn't mean that Mookie had a bad year all of a sudden because he's having a bad September, which, by the way, he is. Hitting about 230, one home run, five runs batted in, OPS I think under 700 if I'm not wrong about what might have happened in yesterday's action. But once Ronald passed him in home runs and passed him in a number of other stats, I think just started to sway 
completely the other way. And now we're looking at, what, eight games left in the season. And I don't think that we need to spend too much more time on this debate because I think the point has been made, and it's Ronald Acuna Jr. who's been making the point. And if you follow me on social media, which, again, at Grant McCauley is where you can find me on just about any platform, here are a few things that Ronald Acuna Jr. has done in his MVP caliber season, things that I've just been digging up over the past couple of weeks. You might have seen a few of these, but I want to make sure as many people as possible can hear it. And I've got a bullhorn, so I'm going to go ahead and give you a few of them right here. With the leadoff home run, Ronald Acuna Jr. joined not only the 40-40 club, but also the most hits by a Braves player since 1974. He's got 209 now. Ralph Gar had 214 back in 1974, which was an interesting year for Braves baseball because that was the year that Hank Aaron became the home run king. That's how long it's been since a Braves player had this many hits. Now you throw in 40-60, 40-70, and you start to get the idea of where I'm going. Ronald Acuna Jr. scored 143 runs. That's a record for a Braves player, most in a season in MLB since Alex Rodriguez crossed the plate 143 times for the New York Yankees in 2007. Now, I went back and looked, and the last player to score 150 or more runs was Jeff Bagwell, 152 of those for the Astros in 2000. So that doesn't sound like it's been that long, but I really needed to know, okay, 150 runs, that just does not seem like a common stat. And I grew up on baseball cards. That's how I got to know the world of baseball. Because, yeah, I watched a lot of Braves baseball on TBS. You might have already gathered that. Might have told you. Some really great childhood memories there. But sorting through packs of baseball cards, you kind of get to know all the 26 teams at that time. And you get to know all the star players and the big years that they've had. And I couldn't really think of too many guys with 150 runs scored. And that's a really good reason because my allowance did not have me buying too many Ted Williams cards. Because that's the last guy who did it. 150 runs scored in 1949. Prior to that, it was Joe DiMaggio in 1937. So over this next eight games, if Acuna can score seven more runs, which feels not pretty much like a probability but a likelihood here, he'd have a chance to do something that only three players have done in the last 86 years. And all three of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. Jeff Bagwell more recently, and I think we've all heard the Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio stories uh, for quite some time. But that's the kind of company that Ronald Acuna Jr. is keeping, and that is where I start to look at the stats of his season and put them in the backdrop of the history that he's making and the names that he is associated with. This is kind of the same sort of thing that we always have to make that uh, argument about Shohei Otani. Well, who is the peer? Who has done this? Who has done that that he's done? Well, with Shohei Otani, it's Babe Ruth. That's a pretty good peer. For Ronald Acuna Jr., it is a treasure trove of Hall of Famers that he is joining on some different lists here. He became just the fourth primary leadoff man in Major League Baseball history to collect 100 runs batted in. Mookie Betts had just done that earlier this month. So like I said, Mookie's had himself a good season, but I think Ronald has basically taken the mantle or the mantra of, well, anything he can do, I can either also do or I can do better. That just feels like the tone and tenor of what Ronald Acuna Jr. has been doing. With his 100 RBIs and 68 stolen bases, how about this? Ronald Acuna Jr. is the first player in Major League Baseball with 100 runs batted in, 60 or more steals since Joe Morgan did it for the Reds in 1976. Big red machine. Pretty good baseball team. 2023 Atlanta Braves, also a pretty good baseball team. And the guy that really gets it all going toward the top of the order, it was Joe Morgan back then. It's Ronald Acuna Jr. now. That was back-to-back MVPs that Morgan won in 75 and 76. Prior to that, the last time somebody had 100 runs batted in and 60 stolen bases uh, was some guy named Ty Cobb, who did it twice. And Ben Chapman, who I was not overly familiar with, but it's only happened five times since 1900. So, Ronald Acuna Jr., any which way you slice this season, it's just incredible numbers. 
And no player in Major League Baseball had ever hit 30 homers and stolen 60 bases in the same season. I feel like we've covered that base, no pun intended, quite a few times the last couple of weeks. Acuna is now the first of 40 with 50 stolen bases and the first of 40 homers and 60 stolen bases. And with two more, he can be the first of 40 with 70 stolen bases. These are numbers that even back in spring training, and keeping in mind, you're hearing from somebody who has run a Ronald Acuna Jr. 40-40 tracker since the very end of March and 1st of April. And there is no joking around with how serious I thought this season could be for Ronald Acuna Jr., but maybe 70 stolen bases, maybe a Braves franchise record. He needs five more in the final nine games to break Otis Nixon's Braves record of 72 steals set back in 1991. And that would also be the first 70 stolen base season in baseball since Jacoby Ellsbury in 2009 and just the fifth time in the past 25 years. So when you start to add all of these things up, and by all of these things, I mean every stat, basically, that Ronald Acuna Jr. has put up, and then you start thinking about, okay, well, this is a guy that also strikes out half as much as he used to. It's just mind-boggling. At 25 years old, let me talk to Jason Foster about this. What do you do for an encore to all of this? Because I just spent about eight minutes running down just some of the accomplishments of Ronald Acuna Jr. in this 2023 season. MVP, I think, is pretty safe to say. Braves now have belted 296 home runs as a club. That's 11 away from the Major League record set by the 2019 Twins. We've been tracking that a little bit. Eight games left to play. The Braves are on pace for 311. How did they get there? Well, let me tell you. They've got five guys with 30 home runs, four of those with 35 or more, two with 40 now, and one with 50, as all part of 10 players in double digits and home runs and seven with 20 or more. I mean, any which way you look at the Braves lineup as a whole, it's not just Ronald Acuna Jr. It's not just Matt Olson, not just Ozzie Albies, who also got to 30 home runs this week and 100 runs batted in. So kudos to Ozzie for joining some of those clubs. It's not just Austin Riley. It's not just the top four hitters in the order. you got to deal with some pretty serious lumber going up and down the Braves' starting nine. And anybody can beat you on a given night, and that's what makes, I think, this Braves club so dangerous. It is going to be driven by the best offense in baseball. And I say that because the Braves lead Major League Baseball in batting average, 276. OPS, 845. They've scored the most runs in baseball. They're only, what, seven away from setting a franchise record in runs. They've got 899 of those, thanks to the 296 home runs. And, oh, by the way, I heard this again this week, and I'm going to go ahead and squash it right now. The Braves are not a home run or nothing club. I mean, I just pointed out all the stats they lead in. The Braves are leading Major League Baseball in home runs, and they are 25th in strikeouts. This is a club, again, the kind of offense all around, sum it all up, the likes of which we have never seen before. I mentioned Ozzie Albies reached the 100 RBI plateau. He became the fourth Braves hitter to do that. Second time for him in his young career that he's had a 30-100 and 100 season, which is a rarity for second baseman. If you think of guys like Ryan Sandberg, maybe Jeff Kent, uh, very few other, Rogers Hornsby, not that we want to go down that rabbit hole too far, but either way, 30-100 and 100 for a second baseman, some serious business. He leads all Middle infielders, that's shortstops or second baseman. I threw them all together with the 32 home runs and 104 RBI this season. Again, that's a hard thing to do. And the power is not necessarily expected from your middle infielders, but it is, I think, expected from your first baseman. And how about Matt Olson? He just continues to rewrite the Braves' record books with his career-best season that he's having. 53 home runs now and 132 RBI. That's the most since the Braves' club moved to Atlanta. He matched Gary Sheffield, who did it in 2003. It's three away from the franchise record set by Eddie Matthews in 1953. That's when they first became the Milwaukee Braves. And if you want to go back even further, I believe it's 1894, Hugh Duffy. That's the record, 145. It would take a lot in the last eight games for Olsen to get 13 more RBI. 
but I won't put it past him. And this has been the kind of year in which he has been able to do things that, again, you might not have expected from Matt Olson when he was acquired in a trade. I thought, hey, 40 home runs annually, sign me up. 100 runs batted in, maybe 100 walks. That was kind of what I thought we were getting here, but 50-plus home runs in your second year in. Again, good luck trying to figure out what you're going to do for an encore Matt Olson, but a pretty incredible part of this Braves offense, which has been incredible. And speaking of which, and I'll close out on this one, Marcelo Zuna could win the National League Comeback Player of the Year award, and he could do it for what he did inside the 2023 season alone. This was a guy that I think was maybe 24, 48 hours from being designated for assignment after having an absolutely abysmal month of April because the Braves were kind of in a roster crunch, and this was not the first time that Ozuna had struggled. His 2021 and 2022 seasons, in addition to having some troubles off the field, he was one of the least valuable players in terms of just about any metric you look at in all of baseball. And all he's done is go from hitting, I believe it was, what, 095 at the end of April to pushing his batting average up above 270. He's got 36 home runs and 90 runs batted in after a three-run homer on Friday. And the Braves the last couple of years hadn't gotten next to nothing from Marcelo Zuna, and somehow he has returned to his middle-of-the-order form. One more homer for him. He'll match his career high. He's got an outside shot at 40. It'd be four and, what, eight games. Austin Riley's three home runs away from 40. I don't think anybody has done four 40-plus homer hitters on the same team. I know it's happened with 40 times three for the Rockies and for the Braves back in 1973. But again, you just can't really take away from this team the possibility of what they could do over this final eight games. It's just been an absolute tour de force for the Braves lineup. And the top of all of it has been Ronald Acuna Jr. And if you didn't get it earlier, let me sum it up. I think he has taken that MVP award. He's run away. He's hiding with it, and we'll await the official announcement during awards season come December. When we come back, I'll talk to my buddy Jason Foster about some trends heading into the playoffs. Should we be worried about the Braves? Should we be confident about the Braves? Should we be somewhere in the middle? We'll find out next as From the Diamond with Grant McCauley continues on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we continue on a Saturday afternoon. Braves are getting the day off thanks to some bad weather up in Washington, but we are not taking the day off here. we got lots of Braves headlines to talk about and to help me break down some of the recent trends and other stories that are going on around this club as they prepare for October. I want to welcome my buddy Jason Foster into the show. You can follow him on Twitter or X or whatever it is we're calling it these days. I guess it's X because that's what the marquee says. Be that as it may, at by Jason Foster is where you can find him there. And he's got a great newsletter, Total Braves. You can find it on Substack. Make sure you subscribe to that. Well, Jason, we know this is the time of year that baseball fans live for. You can get excited about what's to come. You might just be terrified by what's to come. But either way, the possibilities are out in front of you. And you always want to have a seat at the table come October because you never know what could happen. That's something you've been talking about this week on the newsletter. So thanks for making some time to join me today. Thank you for having me. So as I look at the Braves, and we know they were the first team in baseball to clinch their division, which is always great. Since then, however, there was a tough weekend sweep down in Miami, then a series loss to the Phillies that the Braves had a pretty good chance to take two out of three, yet that is not what happened. You took a dive into that in your in your, in your newsletter this week, and I was just kind of wondering how much confidence 
do you think is built or lost over the final couple of weeks for a team with the best record in baseball that's clinched its division, that's punched its ticket to the postseason, all of those things, as it heads into October, if maybe the last couple of weeks don't involve maybe the best baseball they've played all year? Well, the short answer I would give is it depends on the team. And if you have an elite team, as this Braves team is, I don't think they're going to lose any confidence at all because, you know, there's this this myth that's been out there for a long time that teams need to go into the postseason hot and that if they go in cold, then that means they're going to get eliminated in the first round or, you know, just play poorly. But in doing the research for this column this week in my newsletter, it doesn't work out that way. I mean, yes, you can find examples throughout baseball history of, of teams that kind of limped into the playoffs and then limped right back out. But you can also find plenty of examples of teams that went in like crazy hot and still also in the first round, just to give you a couple of examples. The 2019 Dodgers, who you'll recall were the defending National League champions, Mm -hmm. they won 106 games. They won 10 of their last 12. They ended the season on a seven-game winning streak, and they still lost in the NLDS. Mm. The 2021 Giants, they won 107 games. They won eight of their last nine. They also had a seven-game winning streak, and they also lost in the NLDS. Right. So – it doesn't really matter ultimately if you go in hot or cold, especially if you're a good team. I think, you know, where you worry about that is your more mediocre playoff teams that maybe top out at 90 or so wins and maybe they don't play that well the last week or so. Those are the ones you worry about. But with an elite team like the Braves, especially with an elite offense, like you really don't worry about that kind of thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. And if you really look at it, even last year, I mean, I would say the Braves, they essentially had to finish the season hot a year ago in order to win the National League East. And they had to win that big series against the New York Mets, which a lot of people felt like might be a playoff preview of some sort. And the next thing you know, the 101-win Braves, the 101-win Mets, and also the 111-win Dodgers all got knocked out of the postseason early. So it's not necessarily the one-loss record. So I can understand that part of folks' argument. But I would also say that the Braves have finished hot several times, gone into the postseason, and not necessarily gotten where they wanted to. And to your point, other clubs have just kind of closed out the regular season and then just started anew in October, which I really feel like, as much as anything, the postseason is its own season in and of itself. It's a very small schedule. It's not the 162. It's not a marathon. It's managed differently. But I don't really buy into the after effects of, if you want to call it a hangover from winning the division or or what have you, that that's really a harbinger of things to come for a club like the Braves or really any other team. Yes. And just to give you an example on the other side of a team going in cold, the 2000 Yankees, and granted that was 23 years ago, but it was still under a system where there were three playoff rounds Mm -hmm. at the time. You'll recall the 2000 Yankees had won back-to-back World Series. In 98 and 99, they were over 100 wins or or very close to 100 wins. And then in 2000, they were on a similar pace until September, and then they they just had a very cold September. They lost 15 of their last 18 games. They had a seven-game losing streak to close out the season, and that followed a six-game losing streak just a few days earlier. Right. They were blown out a lot. I mean, we're talking 11-1, 15-4, 16-3, those kind of things. And so they stumbled into the ALDS on a seven-game losing streak against the A's. And the A's were hot, by the way. They had won 10 of 12 to finish the season. Uh-huh. Then the A's won game one of that series. And so that was the Yankees' eighth straight loss. And then the Yankees won the World Series. So, like, <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I know fans think it matters. It seems that it matters. And I'm sure for individual teams at times it has mattered. But for this Braves team, I wouldn't put much stock at all 
how they go into the season hot or cold. Because like you said a few minutes ago, you know, going back to the 90s, there have been Braves teams going hot and get eliminated early. There have been Braves teams that went in cool and got eliminated. And there have been Braves teams that went in mediocre and got eliminated. So it, it really doesn't matter ultimately. Yeah, and some of these teams went in in any of those various incarnations of hot, cold, or somewhere in the middle and gone to the World Series. And, of course, the 95 team won the World Series. So it also brings me back to, and this is always a conversation that I hear throughout the course of the season, is that, okay, well, the Braves offense, well, good pitching beats good hitting in the postseason. I would like to present to you the Atlanta Braves pitching staff of the 1990s and say, okay, if good pitching always beats good hitting, then where are the other two or three World Series titles that this club should have? Because the good pitching was there. It's just, you know, you got to face the other club and you got to face their pitching. And there's a lot of situational stuff and it's never just one thing. So be that as it may, chatting with Jason Foster here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the WadeFord.com hotline. We got some news heading into the weekend. The Braves going to shut down Max Freed for the remainder of the regular season, which, as we know, is only a week or so. He's placed on the IL, which means he's going to skip his final start of the regular season and give this blister issue a chance to subside. Freed had already said if this was the postseason, this is something he'd push his way through. But I think it's understandable, Jason, for the Braves and for Max Freed not to take any chances with perhaps the most important piece of their rotation. And if you needed a reminder of that, just look at what happened a year ago when the Braves headed into October with a sick Max Freed. And of course, we know Spencer Strider wasn't 100% either. Exactly. And this was 100% the right move to put him on the I.L., I mean, obviously, competitors, they want to play. They want the ball. Max Fried's a competitor. He, he wants to pitch no matter, you know, what the situation is. But this was the right move because you would rather have a 100% healthy Max Fried mm-hmm. than a 90% or 80% healthy Max Fried, which would still be pretty good but might be off just enough to be ineffective in a bad spot on a bad day and could, you know, shift a series. So putting him on the IL, kind of shutting him down, letting him rest, heal that blister – Definitely the right move. Yeah, no, I definitely think that it is. And erring on the side of caution, we saw it over the weekend in Miami with Ron Lacuna Jr. We're seeing it with Charlie Morton with whatever's going on with his finger issue that cropped up on Friday. The Braves are just going to have to be careful and should be careful with guys who could play a key role in the postseason. These injuries are ill-timed. Not that there's ever a good time for an injury, but this is certainly the time where you would like to know that you've got your staff and your whole team going into the postseason as healthy and effective as possible. You can't manage around them all the time. I mean, injuries happen for a variety of reasons to a variety of players at a variety of times, but you want to be as safe as you can be. And I think for the Braves and for Max Fried, this is the move to make because we know how important this pitching staff is going to be. And in saying that, here's the spot that everybody wants to examine, and that is the bullpen. Statistically, the Braves' bullpen has been pretty good this season. The September results, though, everyone would stipulate, have been uneven, to say the very least. I think that they've got the main pieces in place at the back end, Jason, but it's going to be really interesting to see how the Braves fill out the bullpen and who makes this postseason roster because you're not going to have Dylan Lee available. You thought you might. You may have Jesse Chavez back as he returned this week. How exactly do you think all this is going to shake out? And do you feel confident in the back-end pieces? The guys like Rysel Iglesias, A.J. Minter, Joe Jimenez, Pierce Johnson, those kinds of guys. It feels like the Braves have already figured out exactly how things should look at the back end. It's just getting there and rounding out this bullpen that they're really trying to figure out here over the final week. Yeah, I think the Braves' bullpen is going to be fine. And I know that fans don't want to hear that, and I know that because they've told me multiple times. But the bullpen is – it's better than solid. It, it's a really good bullpen when you look at the numbers. And statistically, you can't really argue 
where they rank in the National League or across MLB. They're a good bullpen. But what a lot of people don't realize or want to accept is that relief pitchers and bullpens go through slumps just like hitters do. Mm -hmm. And good hitters come out of slumps. Eventually, good pitchers come out of slumps. The reason a a pitcher slump seems worse than a hitter slump is because – it takes longer on the calendar. You know, a hitter plays every day. So maybe they're in a, a five-game slump. They come out of it on the sixth slump. A pitcher in a five-game slump, that might take a month. And so it just it seems like they're worse than they are. So I think these guys have been good all year. And I don't buy any notion that they were actually bad all year and they were overperforming and now it's just coming to light how bad they are. I think they were good and still are good. They were just in a slump, and they will come out of it hopefully in time for the postseason. But I do think ultimately they're going to be fine. And as for those back-end guys, they'll be fine too. Uh, look at a guy like Kirby Yates who's been known to be kind of a fan punching bag this season. But I wrote about him briefly in one of my other newsletters. He's actually been really good this season. He has had a couple bumps here and there. He's been really good. Saturday uh, against the Marlins was the – First time he allowed multiple runs in an outing since July 4th, and that was 26 appearances. So he's been really good. And if you want to talk about war for pitchers, his war is the second highest in the bullpen behind Jesse Chavez, believe it or not. So Kirby Yates has been solid, and I would not hesitate to put him on a roster by any means. Yeah, I think that guys like this that have had a pedigree of being an all-star closer in the past at the Braves, they, they did an upside play there. I mean, they did an upside play, I think, on Pierce Johnson, hoping that he would return to form. And I think both of these guys have contributed pretty nicely to this Braves bullpen. Jesse Chavez, though, is quite the story. I mean, getting to see him make his comeback after what could have been a season, maybe even career-ending injury, the line drive off his leg, that could be one of the stories that we're talking about throughout October, just by the fact that he's able to help out in bridging that gap to those back-end guys. So, I have felt like it's a bullpen that, like, when I hear the criticism of it, I mean, yeah, it's frustrating, and I understand that. But if you watch all 30 teams' bullpens throughout the course of the season, you are going to see ups and downs and attrition and roster moves and all kinds of other things that go into creating that, what is it, eight or nine men that you're allowed to have on the roster at any given time that are supposed to comprise that bullpen. It's just kind of the price of doing business or just life as a reliever, which I think can be taxing at times in and of itself. Jason, I want to wrap up with this. It's kind of a high note, if you will. It's the highest note, I think, of all for the Braves as far as individuals are concerned. Ronald Acuna Jr. putting together the kind of season which we've really never seen before, historically speaking. It started with that 40-40 talk back in spring training, but it spread like wildfire across his stat sheet. I know we've talked about this, you and I. We've watched him for years, but did you ever think that Acuna was capable of the kinds of things that he is doing all at once, all in one season, in route to what I think should be the National League MVP award. I thought he was capable of a lot of these things individually. For example, I I knew he could hit 40-plus homers because we've seen him do that. Mm -hmm. I knew he could uh, slug for a a high percentage because we've seen him do that. But doing it all in the same season, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the the 68 stolen bases is crazy in itself, considering his previous career high was 37. And I'm sure that some of it is because of the new rules. But like so many people have pointed out, if it's exclusively because of the new rules, then why aren't more people stealing right. totals near his? So 40-70, I would say it's probably going to happen. We've got um, plenty of time left for him to do it. And so 40-70 has never been done, obviously, just like 30-60 had never been done. That, to me, when you do something that's never been done in the history of baseball and it's something that impressive, that is automatic MVP. 
I would agree with that. And we're throwing around lists with names of Hall of Famers and MVPs and the likes seemingly every few days now. So it brings me to my, I guess, last question and the only logical follow-up to all of this because it's not always necessarily what have you done, but what have you done for me lately? What in the world is Ronald Acuna Jr. going to do for an encore to all this? That's a good question. I mean, we said the same thing about uh, Shohei Otani a couple of years ago, and then he was on track to have an even better season this yeah. year than he did in 2021 before he got hurt. So I think 50 homers is completely a possibility for Acuna. I think 80 stolen bases is completely a possibility. It just comes down to him staying healthy. And of course, as he ages, those probabilities will get less, but he's still just 25. So he's still got a lot of prime left. And so I just think it's a matter of staying healthy. It's it's cliche to say the sky's the limit, but with Acuna, it kind of is. Yeah, I mean, the sky might be the floor with this guy, the way it's played out this year. Jason Foster, I appreciate all your time as always. Let the folks know about the newsletter, how they can check that out, and what else you're working on these days. Yeah, I have a newsletter called Total Braves. It's on Substack. You can search for that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at by Jason Foster. That's B-Y Jason Foster. I post there pretty much every day, and the newsletter comes out uh, three days a week. It's free. You can sign up for it on Substack. So go ahead and do that. All right. Make sure you're subscribed. I know I am, Jason. Always enjoy reading that stuff, and always enjoy chatting Braves with you, and hope to do it again soon. Yeah, thanks, man. Always great to catch up with Jason Foster. Make sure you are subscribed to his newsletter over on Substack. It is called Total Braves. Lots of great stuff. I've known Jason for a number of years. And if you're looking for great Braves coverage, some cool T-shirts, and a lot of other stuff that we've come to appreciate around these parts, make sure you're following Jason. When we come back, we'll turn our attention to some of the biggest stories from across Major League Baseball from the week that was. We'll take our trip around the big leagues next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. It is hour two of the show. Of course, the Braves get themselves an unscheduled off day on Saturday thanks to some rain up in Washington. They'll play a doubleheader, at least try to, on Sunday. But a lot of other things happening across baseball in the week that was. And I picked out a few stories that I was really intrigued with or I thought you might be intrigued with. And some, uh, well, they're just as simple and straightforward as they can possibly be. And I'll start with this one, Shohei Otani. He underwent elbow surgery uh, this past week. It happened on Tuesday. Uh, Otani's not expected to pitch in 2024. That, though, uh, is only one part of the magical unicorn that he is because he's also an above-average hitter and is looking for an above-average contract heading into the winter. So what is all this going to mean? How exactly is all this going to play out? It's the uh, elbow surgery, of course, that casts some uncertainty over this. He tore his UCL on August the 23rd, which ended his season on the mound. He continued to hit for another 10 or so days and then strained his oblique. So that was kind of the end of that for Otani and the Angels for this year. Uh, Dodgers head team physician Neil Elatrache is the one who operated on Otani uh, out in Los Angeles, and the two sides decided to reinforce the healthy ligament in place. So that sounds like the UCL bracing procedure, which would allow him, one would imagine, to get back faster than undergoing Tommy John for the second time. But uh, Otani having an outstanding season or had an outstanding season, he's the odds-on favorite to win the American League MVP award with 44 homers, 96 runs knocked in, 20 stolen bases for him. He also went 10-5 and in 23 starts with a 3.14 ERA and punched out 167 batters in 132 innings. And that I just have to say again because I don't know how many times in my lifetime I'll be able to tell you about the pitcher that hits 44 homers 
or the hitter who goes, what, 10 and 5 and strikes out 167 guys. It's truly amazing, and hopefully we'll see Shohei Otani back on the mound and back in form in 2025. Meanwhile, also in Los Angeles, we've heard a lot about Shohei Otani for good reason, the contract, the impending free agency, all of those things. One man who forewent the opportunity to go free agent was Mike Trout when he signed a long-term extension with the Angels a few years ago. But at this point, the off-injured Trout might draw some interest from some other clubs, and you might also like a change of scenery. At least that's the popular logic that's going along. John Heyman reporting that the Angels and Mike Trout haven't exchanged any words whatsoever about the likelihood of a trade. So it's a story that's not a story, basically. But USA Today had reported that they'd consider dealing him the Angels would if he wanted to go. And that, of course, lights the hot stove before we've even gotten through the playoffs, which is what we're always looking for. Uh, but folks around the team have not really seen any, any indication, according to Heyman, that Trout wants to go anywhere. But as one has to do when you start talking about the possible trade of a superstar, where could he go and what teams would be able to take on the gargantuan contract seven years and $35 million per season? The Angels presumably would have to kick some money into that, but Trout is a Philadelphia area kid or a South Jersey kid, so would he want to go play for the Phillies or would the Yankees also be of interest to him? And one possibility that Heyman tossed out there was a Nice, big contract swap, bad contract swap. hate to say that about Trout because he's a generational player, but he's been injured a lot. But the Yankees could conceivably consider sending Giancarlo Stanton to the Angels for Trout, according to this one theory, one way to do it. But I'm not sure if I'm the Angels that I'm looking to take on somebody else's bad money and trade away the greatest player in franchise history just to do it. You're going to have to make it a little bit more interesting than that. But uh, that will conclude our Angels portion of our trip around the big leagues. Meanwhile, trades are going to be big talk, of course, as we get into the winter. But Mets star Pete Alonso, uh, he is not really so interested in a trade and made some comments this week to SNY to kind of reinforce how exactly it is he feels about his time in New York. But as an impending free agent after next year, it stands to reason that the Mets might want to shop their slugging first baseman in the offseason Here's what Pete Alonso had to say about that possibility. How I view the Mets, I like, I, I love it here. I love New York. Um, it's been such a blessing and an honor to to be a part of this organization. And uh, New York, it doesn't feel like home because it is home. Like New York for for my family and I, it, it just means so much. And it's uh, it's really it's really been. A, I mean, City Field's a great place to play. I mean, the fans are super passionate and care so much. And the whole city of New York has just been. Uh, super welcoming to uh, my family and I. It's just been, it's it's been an honor. I mean, it's been nothing short of an honor, and it's um, it's been it's been awesome. So that's for me. Um, the only thing that only thing really I've been focusing on. I just want to be the best player I can be every single day uh, for my teammates, um, for my teammates, uh, this organization, and the fans. And that's that's really that's really all been all I've been trying to focus on this year, and and that's really it. Well, I can say that may be it for him, but if you look at the bigger scope of what has happened for the New York Mets, a club that spent the most money in baseball history only to fall flat on its face this year, it doesn't mean they're going to stay there in the future because I think Steve Cohen is probably going to spend some more money at some point, but is he going to spend the money it takes to retain Pete Alonso? He did it for some other Mets over the course of the offseason. This past year, they obviously locked up Francisco Lindor after getting him from Cleveland, but are they going to be able to keep Pete Alonso moving forward? We'll kind of find out how that goes. But it doesn't sound like that this is going to be anything that's going to be decided anytime soon. Quite obviously, Alonzo is under contract through 2024, so they don't have to trade him this winter. They could hold on to him. They could extend him. There could be a lot of things that happen, and we'll talk about that 
as it goes on. But the, for the New York Mets, who signed Max Scherzer to a big money contract, traded him away, Jacob deGrom leaving, then signing Justin Verlander and trading him away, it's been quite the calendar year for them and not the kind of calendar year they were looking for. Meanwhile, here's something nobody was looking for. The A's getting absolutely roasted for gifting Miguel Cabrera what amounted to a $90 bottle of wine. This was part of his retirement tour, and you may have seen these. Chipper Jones got one of these a few years ago. You go to the different cities and the different teams, they present you with a little something. I believe you might have ended up getting a surfboard from the Padres or somebody got a surfboard from the Padres. Might have been everybody that's retired and gone through there that's heading to the Hall of Fame that got one. But either way, Miguel Cabrera has picked up a few gifts along the way. Now, as you look at, I don't know, what is appropriate and not appropriate, unfortunately, Cabrera is in a little bit of a different situation because you're gifting a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon to a recovering alcoholic, which is probably not the best idea in and of itself. Cabrera, three months in an alcohol treatment program after the 2009 season, and was also arrested for DUI a couple of years later. This has been a problem for him. And clearly, once you get into recovery, you know how this goes. You're always in recovery. You're only one step away. But you look at the headlines, and it does not paint the athletics in a great light, and that may be just kind of part and parcel to what their season has been as far as headlines and painting the athletics. But uh, from Fox News, Tigers Miguel Cabrera, recovering alcoholic, given $90 bottle of wine by athletics. New York Post, A's roasted for gifting Miguel Cabrera a $90 bottle of wine. Sports Illustrated, the A's gave Miguel Cabrera a cheap and problematic gift. Those just a few of the headlines that you can see, and probably not the headlines that the Oakland Athletics were hoping to get out of this. Uh, Danny Vietti on Twitter, or X, pointed this out. $89.95 is what you can find it for, I believe, a total wine. So if you're out there looking for it, it's a Camus 2020 cab from Napa Valley. So there you have it. I'm not a wine expert, but if you're interested in it, it's out there for you, as many things are uh, on the Internet as far as that goes. But probably not the gift that a club wanted to give to Miguel Cabrera, considering the circumstances Something interesting I did find, though, was that the Milwaukee Brewers have finally punched their ticket to the postseason. I think we knew that somebody had to win the National League Central, and the Brewers are closing in on that. They have punched their ticket to the postseason, but they did it in a rather unusual fashion. They were busy beating the Miami Marlins by a 16-1 to score, so closing that out, you would think, okay, well, we're going to have somebody that can get those last three outs because we're going to October. Would you believe that it was first baseman slash DH Rowdy Telez? because he became a position player that did something nobody else in baseball had done before. Take a listen to the scene down in Miami. Whee! And he struck him out. High cheese. Keep that ball. <laughs> Look Keep at Adamas. Save that ball for sure. That goes on the mantle. First career big league strikeout. Yeah. He earned it too. Nine pitches later. High, we'll call it heat, up and in. <laughs> Well, that was the first career strikeout for Rowdy Telez, and trust me, he got all the outs he needed to. The Brewers picked up a 16 to one win, and they did so with a six foot four, 270 pound slugger out there making his major league debut, and just I guess throwing strike after strike after strike. So the Telez story, I think, is something that we haven't seen as much of with the new rules because you can't use position players the way that they were quite as frequently. I believe it's you have to be leading by ten. If you're the winning team or down by 10, maybe 7, if you're the losing club, but either way, it's harder to get a position player on the mound, and I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. But this, a pretty interesting one, I, I thought, because Telez, he doesn't exactly look the part of a hard-throwing closer, but he was able to get it done with the soft stuff. Greg Maddox style was the way that Telez was able to do it. Meanwhile, 
as we talk about the postseason, and we're going to talk about this a lot more with Matt Snyder of CBS Sports coming up here in just a few minutes, but the National League wild card is one that I feel like somebody has to win it, but nobody can decide who exactly is going to, and now that has allowed the door to stay just open enough for the San Diego Padres to quite possibly walk in and throw one big chaos grenade into the middle of these wild card standings. You look at the top, no question about the Phillies. They have a nice, comfortable five-game lead. I don't know that there's really any question about the Arizona Diamondbacks because they're on a winning streak. They've won five in a row. They've gotten hot at the right time all of a sudden. They've done it a few times this year. They've got a two-game lead on the second wild-card spot. But then you have the Cubs and the Marlins tied up. You have a half game back of there, the Cincinnati Reds. Three games back, the Giants, who have lost three in a row. Not a great time for that. And then you find the San Diego Padres, a club that has not been more than three games over 500 since the first week of May. But they have won seven in a row. They're now three games under 500. And Mike Petriello of MLB.com did the exercise so that I didn't have to. What has to happen for the Padres to take the third wild card spot in the National League? And it's a lot. There's some tiebreakers that are going to go in and some teams that uh, San Diego wins the tiebreaker with, the Marlins, the Reds, and the Giants. They lose the tiebreaker, though, to the Cubs and the Diamondbacks. And again, I'm not sure the Diamondbacks are really you know, too much to worry about or have too much to worry about with the Padres here. But what has to happen for the Padres to maybe take that third wild card spot with the tiebreakers I just laid out? If the Padres somehow figure out a way to go 8-1 and one down the stretch, well, the Padres would need the Cubs to go 3-6 and six down the stretch. They would need the Reds to go 4-4 four and four or worse, and they need the Marlins to go 4-5 and five or worse. And that would somehow, incredibly, get the San Diego Padres, a club that has woefully underperformed its expectations in 2023, especially considering where they were a year ago, it could get them back in October. And again, it's all about getting a seat at that table. Maybe the Padres can do it. I don't know. But that'll wrap up our trip around the big leagues. And uh, there's going to be a lot more to talk about when it comes to this pennant race and these wild card races. And I'm going to have Matt Snyder of CBS Sports step in and join me for the remainder of our trip around the big leagues right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Take a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we continue our trip around the big leagues and take a look at how some of the other races are shaping up because while we know what's happened in the National League East and while we have a pretty good idea what the Braves are trying to accomplish in the National League as a whole, there are a lot of scenarios and possibilities that have yet to play out in both leagues, particularly in the wild card. To help me break all that down, I want to welcome in my friend Matt Snyder of CBS Sports. He joins me on the waitfor.com hotline. Well, Matt, always great to catch up with you, and it is a great time of year. If you're a baseball fan, we have a couple of races that we pretty much know how they're going to go, or we already do, but that I don't think is true. For the full playoff picture in both of these leagues, it may just come down to the wire. Yeah, absolutely. Both wild card races are ridiculous, but I, I think I like the American League one more a little bit. First of all, because the National League, not many of them are really impressive teams. Mm -hmm. But second of all, because the AL race is so intertwined with the AL West race. You have the three teams within a half game of each other, and it's possible that one will get squeezed out of the playoffs entirely uh, with the Blue Jays' inclusion in the wild card race there. Yeah. So Plus, there's all those head-to-heads in the West. Like, the, the Mariners only play the Rangers and Astros the rest of the way. That's it. The Astros have the three against the Mariners in between the seven, between the Rangers and the Mariners. So uh, going to be a lot of blood in there between those three teams. 
I think that's what I'm looking the most forward to. Yeah, it could be a lot of fun. I want to touch on that race a little bit more later, but uh, even if it's not the sexiest or most exciting in the National League, we've got the Braves who clinched the East. They secured their yeah. bye. They also have the home field advantage, at least for the NLDS, and they're working on the rest of this. But as we talked about, this wild card picture, at least the final couple of spots in the National League, I feel like it seems like that one may not come in focus till the very end. The Phillies look like right. a club that belongs in October. The rest of these teams, I think they're trying to convince each other and maybe themselves that they should have a spot at this table. I guess. I mean, it, the best job they're doing at convincing anybody of anything is that none of them should be playoff teams. I think <laughs> if you look at the whole picture, there's a good argument for the four-team system, right, where mm-hmm. the Phillies would just be the only wild card. The Cubs have lost 10 of their last 13. You would think Rockies coming to Wrigley, that's a good spot for them to get right, but they just lost two, two in a row to the Pirates. They lost the series at Colorado last week. The Marlins have been hot and cold all year. You know, they just swept the Braves, but then they followed that up in a series losing to the Mets. Mm-hmm. A good note for them is Sandy Alcantara had four scoreless innings in his minor league rehab start. And their schedule might be soft. You know, they've got after the Brewers series here, they've got the Mets and Pirates. But again, you just never know who's going to show up. Reds 29 and 34 in the second half. The rotation's kind of in tatters, but then Hunter Green looks like an absolute beast last time out. Mm-hmm. And then they blow the game for him. <laughs> they have an easy schedule. Pirates, Guardians, Cardinals, and the Diamondbacks have won 10 of 14, but all that tells me is they might be about to backslide because that's what they've been doing all year. They get really hot and then they get really cold. I do want to say, even though the chances are ridiculously slim, keep an eye on the Padres. Okay. Won more than three in a row all year. Now they've won seven in a row. They're four out with nine to go. That's a steep hill to climb. They're going to need a lot of futility from all these teams, but all these teams have shown themselves to be capable of futility. They have. Can you get them to all do it at once, though? Because the Padres, that's the and, yeah. and that's a fascinating club in and of itself. And I don't mean fascinating for all the right reasons. I mean, this is a team that, I mean, we've heard you know, about the dysfunction uh, amongst this club and their inability to, as you said, to put together a winning streak. That's going to make it pretty difficult to have your eyes on October or at the very least to try to get there and be in position. But it is a well-timed winning streak. And, you know, there are a couple of these teams that you brought up that, you know, they have been good stories like the Cubs but now they're playing their worst baseball at the worst possible time. So are they going to be able to finish strong? And they've got three games against the Braves coming up. That could be a bit of a challenge. But then we get on the other side, and I want to ask you about the Marlins and how much you may buy their hopes here because they're a bit enigmatic. They could have Sandy Alcantara back, and they took it to the Braves to improve their playoff hopes, but then they took a step back right after that. But this is a club that, you know, if it can win this four-team match to secure a wild-card spot, would be quite a come-up in just one year, considering where they have been, really, the past few years. This is a team that I don't know could have really expected a whole lot of October dreams to come true, especially trying to come out of the National League East. Yeah, I agree. Coming into the year, the sentiment was the Nationals are going to come in last. Mm -hmm. I think almost everybody thought the Braves and Mets were going to fight for the division title, but the Phillies were a strong contender for the division title and maybe would end up in the wild card again, maybe would be third place. And then we all just automatically slotted the Marlins fourth and said, obviously the Mets fell on their face. But if you looked at the Marlins, like Alcantara had a down year. Mm -hmm. Uri Perez, he came up and he was great, but then they sent him down because they were worried about his workload. They had a lot of things go wrong. And to be in this position, it's a testament to their fortitude, especially because remember the one run record. For so long, they were so good at winning one-run games. And I know a lot of people like to just say, 
almost mindlessly at this point. Oh, that, that'll even out. That's not sustainable. That'll some of it, I think, can snowball internally. And in that once you've gone eighteen and four in one run games, every single time it's a close game, you believe, all right, we're going to win. Yeah, I still think there's a mental aspect to that. And uh, as it gets closer here, and maybe that could be the difference. I, I do think the Phillies are in. I'm inclined to say the second spot goes to the Diamondbacks, even though I said they're so up and down. They're hot right now. They have the lead there. They have the tiebreaker over the Cubs. The Cubs have lost the tiebreaker to everybody, by the way. Oh, Marlins wow. okay. Diamondbacks all have head-to-heads over the Cubs. If I had to choose between these teams, I think I would take the Marlins right now. I, I just feel like they're the – if we exclude the Diamondbacks and Phillies – out of the teams left, I feel like the Marlins are the team that is least likely to disappoint, I guess. I have to approach it from that way because none of them are overly impressive. But the Marlins are the least unimpressive to me right now between the Marlins, Reds, Cubs. It's very fascinating the way that this all has to be couched because, you know, all of these teams, they have their blemishes. They're all flawed. Yeah. Nobody looks like, you know, a powerhouse that can't be denied. And I mean that in the wild card sense that. You know, even if you're in a division like the NL East is or like the NL West with the Dodgers running away with that, despite a valiant effort, at least in the first half from the Diamondbacks, there's still the possibility to get into October. And then, as you know, what could happen in a three game or a five game series that might send somebody to the National League Championship Series. We've seen that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Year after year after year. Chatting with Matt Snyder of CBS Sports here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. He joins me on the WaitFord.com hotline, as always. Uh, a lot of focus on the Braves and Dodgers in the National League, and justifiably so. Uh, but do you think that people might be overlooking the Brewers a bit? They don't have these superstar-led offenses, but this pitching staff is one that I think is strong enough to neutralize a lineup in at least a series or two to make October yes. a bit more interesting. Absolutely. And uh, so the thing when I look about the National League landscape as a whole is the Dodgers, the pitching staff's in complete disarray right now. Yeah. And I feel like the second half of the lineup, you really can't count on at all. It's so heavily reliant on Mookie, Freddie, and then to a lesser extent, Will Smith. And when he's right, J.D. Martinez. Mm-hmm. The Braves are an absolute powerhouse, but fluky stuff happens to powerhouses. The Dodgers won 111 last year and didn't even get to the NLCS. Yep. If there's an opening there at all, the Brewers have Burns, Woodruff, and then Freddie Peralta has the capability to throw like an ace. They have a great bullpen with Devin Williams sitting at the backside. Mm-hmm. You could definitely see them getting hot and making a run and going to the World Series. Absolutely. My worry on them is the offense. It just doesn't seem consistent enough. You'd love to see Christian Yelich get back in the lineup and play three or four games in a row and kind of look like he did through the middle part of the season, you know, he started slow and then he looked like the old Yelich and then yeah. he kind of fell back. Obviously have willing Contreras there. Willie Adamas is good power bat. Uh, Frelick right now, the rookie looks really good, but man, you'd love to see more. Can has been great since the trade, mm-hmm. but you'd still love to see a lot more on the offense. But yeah, like there's an opening there. I still feel like if it's somebody other than the Braves, who I do think are a big step above the Dodgers, but then there's a big step below the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. If there's anybody after those two teams, for me, it's still the Phillies. And I don't think it's recency bias because of the run last year. I think it's because they're better built for the playoffs with just the top-heavy rotation, all those power bats who you're hoping get hot at the exact same time. Now, they could get swept, obviously, because if everybody goes cold, but they're built more for the playoffs in the regular season. 
Yeah, and I think we've seen with the Phillies and the Braves could say this even in the last, what, 10 days. I mean, you can beat the Phillies in a series, and you can Absolutely. also lose a series to the Phillies. And the Phillies yep. have shown that they can beat some tough teams and then also lose some series they're not supposed to. But I, I think that in and of itself is kind of, you know, the 162-game season in a nutshell for most clubs. But you bring up some interesting points, as always, when it comes to the Brewers and their possibility of getting further than you think they might go when compared to the yeah. other division winners. Because even look at last year. The Braves won 101 games. They did not go far in the playoffs. Same thing for the Mets, who got pushed into a wild card, but it was a 101-win team. And you already talked about the Dodgers, who won, what, 111 and also didn't make it to the NLCS. So crazy to see that, but that, I think, is some of the fun that can be baked into October. And I use the word fun for if your club is the one that's doing the winning. It's not much fun to go home. Uh, Be that as it may, over in the American League side, somehow at this stage of the season, with, what, a week or so left to go, we're talking about the Baltimore Orioles as the best team in the AL. They have had some recent stumbles, but they still look like a very strong and very capable club. But... How in the world did we get here, and just how dangerous do you think the Orioles could be in the postseason picture for the American League? Yeah, they've got such a balanced team. They can hit for power when they need to. They don't strike out a ton. They take their walks. They hit for average. They run on the bases. uh, They play good defense. They're not, like, amazing at anything on the position player side. They're just good at pretty much everything. And then on the pitching side, they got – it's funny – for a lot of the first half, they were so heavily reliant on Cano and Bautista at the mm-hmm. back end of the bullpen. Cano started to backslide a little bit in the second half. They were thin in front of Bautista. Then he went down. He's trying to battle his way back from what sounds like a torn UCL. And he, he sounds like he's going to try to pitch on that. But if you look at the rotation, I thought the rotation was going to be an issue heading into the year. It's kind of been an issue a little bit of the year, and they just keep winning in spite of that. Now, Braddish has been great. Mm-hmm. Grayson Rodriguez has been really good for the most part since he came back up from the minors. But in front of the trade deadline, the big acquisition was Jack Flaherty, and he has been a total mess ever since his one good start. And it looks like he might go to the bullpen, um, which intrigues me. Uh, his stuff could really play up, but he's, yeah. also had, he's had issues with walks. And that's always like the recipe for disaster in the bullpen. If a guy comes in and just walks three guys, that can ruin a game. So it'll be interesting to see how they piece their rotation together. But if they get the best versions of Bradish and Grayson Rodriguez at the top there, and they figure out how to slot their bullpen, and Bautista comes back and is his old self, they absolutely could win the World Series. And I would feel like they were kind of a year ahead of the curve on that. Because after the 83 wins last year, it felt like this year they had all those young guys. Like uh, Rushman was a rookie last year. Gunnar Henderson was a rookie this year who got a cup of coffee last year. But it's still you're, they're still mixing in guys like uh, Colton Kowser, Jordan Westberg, Heston Ker- Kerstad, who just mm-hmm. came up, homered in, like, I believe, his second game. I thought with them integrating guys like that, it would take them another year before they took that step. But, man, they're already there. So it's going to be fun to to see it all unfold with them. Um, they could get bounced in the first round. They really could. I, you could see the pitching staff getting beaten up and then getting crushed in a five-game series. I mean, we just saw it happen to the Braves last year, and they were a lot more polished than this Orioles team. That's true. And with the Braves last year, and I think this is something they're trying to keep an eye on right now, they had a sick Max Fried and an injured Spencer Strider. That is not yeah. the way you want to walk into the postseason. So they had their own pitching to deal with. And to that point, while the Orioles might not be talking about injuries, 
They want to see some it's consistency. It's just not that good to begin with. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the one thing that I think can definitely undo your postseason run is what happens on the pitching side if everything goes wrong that can. Uh, let's wrap up in the AL West. Uh, and nothing has been decided here. As you said earlier, there have been ups and downs for Houston, for Texas, for Seattle. They're all in the postseason position. The AL West, the wild card, it's all tied together. Who do you think comes out on top in the AL West race? And then maybe the wild card will take care of itself after that. I've stuck with the Astros all year. I'm inclined to continue to stick with them. They've got this series with the Royals right now. I think they probably take care of business there. And I'll even say they sweep. And that should be enough. With those seven head-to-heads between the Mariners and Rangers, both fighting, you've got to figure it goes something like four and three on one side. So that means if the Astros take care of business there, as long as they don't then get swept by the Mariners, I believe that the Astros will take care of business. But yeah, it's a big opportunity for the Mariners. They're eight and two against the Astros so far this year. If they do something like sweep the Astros, (laughs) which would be 11 and two in the season series, which would be amazing. um, They've got a chance. I don't believe in the Rangers at all. I'd slot at one Astros, two Mariners, three Rangers. But hey, you know what? They're all within a half game with about nine or ten to play here. It's going to be really, really fun with all those head-to-heads. It definitely will be. It could come down to the wire and both leagues' wildcard races. And, of course, once you get to October, who in the world knows what could happen? And a little bit of chaos can go a long way, and it's an awful lot of fun. Matt Snyder, CBS Sports. As always, I appreciate your time and look forward to catching up with you again soon. All right, man. Have a good one. Always great to catch up with Matt Snyder, and when we come back, we will turn our focus back to the Atlanta Braves, who are dealing with some pitching uncertainty. How are they going to sort that out? What's the prognosis for Max Fried and for Charlie Morton? We'll talk about it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Here we go now. Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Wrapping things up here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios. Uh, A few things that we need to discuss for the Atlanta Braves before we close out this edition of the show. And some that, while I led with the good news, the good stuff, a little bit earlier with the Ron Lacuna Jr., the offense, Matt Olson, Ozzie Albies, so on and so forth. we got to talk about the Braves pitching staff, which has taken some lumps here uh, when it comes to starting rotation because not just one, but two of the Braves' key starting pitchers are dealing with injury issues. We knew Max Fried had this blister thing going on. I got a chance to catch up with Max Fried and hear his thoughts on it after the first recurrence of this blister thing, which had not really been an issue that he'd had to deal with so much so that it caused him to miss a start or lose time since way back in his minor league days or maybe his rookie year with the Braves, which was, what, 2017 into 2018. He got a couple of, or a few cups of coffee, quite a few, I would say, maybe even a whole pot. But then he was able to come up and become part of the Braves' starting rotation in 2019 as he jumped right out of the bullpen and right into rotation and stayed there, and he's been a fixture at the front of the Braves' rotation, and that's where they need him to be come October, which is getting closer by the day. Well, Max Fried's blister issue is enough for the Braves to go ahead, shut him down so that he's going to miss that final start of the regular season, get some treatment, continue throwing on the side because he can bandage it up and keep his arm loose, but it at least puts a little bit of doubt over the Braves' rotation heading into October, something you were hoping to not have to deal with based on Max Fried being sick a year ago and Spencer Strider dealing with an oblique issue. And now you got Charlie Morton also dealing with a finger issue. And the problem, we don't really know exactly what it is yet. Morton was supposed to get an MRI on Saturday. Braves were going to release the update on that on Sunday as they play the Nationals in a doubleheader. But either way, you didn't want to see Charlie Morton leaving after the first inning. 
And we're going to hear from both of these guys, and we'll start with Max Fried, who after this start, you kind of knew that it was going to be the last regular season outing for him. I don't really detect a whole lot of concern from Max Fried, and hearing him talk before making this start against the Nationals, which was on Thursday, it was six very sharp innings of one-run ball with seven strikeouts. He looked like Max Fried, and I think he's capable of doing that on October 7th when the Braves begin their National League Division Series against whatever the opponent may be. And that is when he'll be eligible to come off the injured list and rejoin the Braves. So let's hear from Max Fried discussing uh, how he was feeling after that start, where exactly he is in terms of this blister issue, and going forward, what steps he and the team have decided it's best to take. Here's the Braves' ace. Outing felt great. Towards the end, finger just filled up with a little bit of fluid, drained it, kind of take it day by day, but felt really good. It was really nice to get back out there. It was working really well with Travis. Guys, obviously, uh, put some runs up early and been able to kind of you know work off of that yeah you said the other day you have continued to deal with this is this normal just something that we're just hearing about now I mean can you deal with this yeah no I mean we're gonna it's something that obviously happens often um just more about managing and dealing with it and kind of it's more of like case by case I would say um but you know I should be good to go for uh you know we're looking at, obviously, playoffs are most important, so whatever's going to be able to get us in line for that, and that's what we're going to do. When pitching naturally causes so much friction on the finger and the skin, how, how do you manage that between starts if there are blisters and things like that, little things? A lot of different treatments, and, you know, we're very fortunate to have a lot of really high-tech equipment and different, you know, ointments and stuff like that. Basically, I'm just a good soldier, and whatever they tell me to do, I just I, I got to do it. Max Reed is more than just a soldier. He's, I would say, a commanding officer as far as the Braves starting rotation is concerned. So you need him out there, and you need him feeling you know, comfortable and able to give you as many innings as he possibly can. That's something that was not available to the Braves a year ago. It was available in 2021, and some very good things happened. And for the Braves to do that again, one would presume they would need Max Reed to be a big part of that. Again, he was placed on the 15-day injured list with that blister issue on his left index finger that will allow him to be activated for the National League Division Series, which starts on October the 7th, Braves' opponent will be determined as this crazy wild card comes to a conclusion over the next what week and a half. Now, Charlie Morton's issue, I feel like, is just a bit murkier because you just don't know exactly what it is. He left his Friday start after throwing just one inning against Washington with discomfort in his right index finger. Mark Bowman of MLB.com on social media saying that it's not a blister issue. They took x-rays. Those were negative. Next step is an MRI. For Charlie Morton, so what exactly is it? How exactly is he feeling about it? Let's hear from the Braves veteran right-hander who has the best postseason pedigree of any of the Braves pitchers. How exactly is he feeling with a setback at a time in which you are not looking for a setback? I'm picked over to first, and I, I noticed um, that my index finger was not great. So I just kept throwing breaking balls and got out of it. Uh, I think Sean came up to me Murph said something like what's going on and I said I think I hurt my finger <laughs> and he told Craner Snit what have they told you here I mean are you concerned about the postseason I mean I don't know uh, I really don't know like I, there there are times when I felt like something was really wrong with me and nothing was wrong with me and there was times where I felt like hey I'm okay and there turned out to be something more severe I don't really know what to tell you like the optimistic side of me says, like, yeah, I'll be fine in 10 days and, like, I'll be good. But I just don't know because it's a finger. It's like if I felt something pop in my shoulder or if I felt something go in my elbow or something like that, but it's literally, like, such a small piece of my body. Like, 
and it could have a large impact on how I perform and if I can go at least to a degree that I'm effective. You know, so it's hard to answer that question because it is such a weird thing to hurt. But I'm hopeful that in four or five days I'll feel good. I don't know what this is. I'm, I'm assuming it's something not that severe because I don't feel like I've lost that much in my finger. Like I don't feel like I'm gonna like leave here and go and not being able to open a door or brush my teeth or you know drive or something like that. It's literally like. One of the few things that it really could affect would be throwing a baseball. You mentioned maybe at times in your career the uncertainty of not knowing how severe an injury is. How have you learned to deal with that? Well, I think a lot of it is, like, can you pitch or not? That's really how it's been. It's like, hey, can you go or not? And, like, if you can't, then you you can't. If you can, you, you try to grind it out. This is a little bit different because it, this would be more of a question about effectiveness than if I can pitch. I mean, I can go out there and pitch, but it's like the next start I make is probably going to be in the postseason, if I had a guess. So it's like it's not some game in late May or, you know, early August. It's going to be the biggest game of the season. So that's where the frustration comes in and the, the question mark comes in. Can you go is not good enough. No, it's not. I mean, you have to be effective. And I think Charlie Morton really hit on all the range of emotions because you could hear kind of the exasperated, I mean, smile through the frustration part of it. But then you hear the recognition of a guy who's 39 going on 40 years old, who's been here before in terms of battling some injury. And he's also been here before in the postseason and knows the importance of having to go out there and be 100% and throw the best games and the biggest innings of your season, maybe your career, depending on how things line up. So, uh, you know, for the Braves, they've got an interesting decision here to make because if they place Charlie Morton on the injured list, then he would not be available to be activated in time to be a part of the National League Division Series roster. Well, if you decide to carry him through and then he does get injured in the Division Series and you have to remove him from that roster, you would not have him available for the National League Championship Series roster. And that's how that works. If you have to take someone off as an injured player, in a round, they have to miss that next round, and that uh, would be some dangerous calculus for the Braves, but they got to figure that all out. But as Charlie said, maybe I'll feel a little bit better in a few days. I can throw, I can pitch, but how effective can I be? And that, I think, is ultimately where the decision has to lie, is how much can you count on him to go out and be effective because that's the number one thing that you're going to need in the postseason, failing all else. So, I think that this brings up a couple of interesting names as far as the starting rotation is concerned. And we have seen the Braves go through you know, Dylan Dodd and Jared Schuster and Michael Soroka. And some of these guys aren't available to you right now because Schuster has already gone through all of his options. Soroka's on the 60 day injured list. Speaking of which, you got Kyle Wright back from the 60 day IL. He's made a couple of starts, both of them against the Phillies. Not necessarily the numbers you want to see, but can he get that pitch count up? Can he be effective? Will there be a maybe a better matchup for him, depending on what you're looking at in that first round? And then, of course, it's kind of tied to Charlie Morton and to maybe a lesser extent Max Fried. What are your options if things do go sideways for the Braves here? They're going to have to figure that all out. The depth chart is going to be a little bit different, but no less important when you head into October. But I do think that Kyle Wright suddenly becomes a bigger factor in this rotation, particularly if Morton uh, does need to go on the injured list. It's been shaky, though, for Kyle is he going to be able to, maybe, no pun intended, write the ship and show you what you need to see over the final couple of starts of the regular season, including one on Sunday? 
Now, where does that leave Bryce Elder, a guy who's been making a start every fifth day for Atlanta since being called up at the very start of the season when all of this instability in the rotation began, when Max Fried strained his hamstring? Well, I do think he's the next man up, and he is the most likely candidate to step up if either Freed or Morton is unable to go. But as you look at the way you'd want to line up your starting pitchers in the division series, I think it would be Max Freed, Spencer Strider, and Charlie Morton, and you only need three starters in the five-game series. So you could be looking at a scenario where you might not even carry Bryce Elder, but at this point, if you feel like there's some fragility there, and I, I don't use that to be a derogatory term to either one, but you've got to be able to kind of hedge your bets here, do you all of a sudden now think that maybe it's more important to carry Bryce Elder because you might need somebody to cover four, five innings if you have a starter that has to come out after the first because they've got a finger issue? Can you count on Kyle Wright to do that? Would you look at Kyle Wright as more so somebody that you might ask to get you five, six, seven outs? Whatever the case may be. We're going to see how all that's going to play out. And we'll see what bullpen opportunities and uh, positions are going to be available for the Braves. And big decisions are going to have to make, whether that's Jesse Chavez or whoever it might be. And, hey, you might just want to keep in the back of your mind, first-round pick Hurston Waldrop. He just got promoted to A Gwinnett. Their season ends this weekend. Might he be a guy that gets a showcase before the season's over to see what happens. So the Braves will wrap up this regular season against the Chicago Cubs and the Washington Nationals with a homestand that starts on Tuesday. And that'll wrap us up for this week's show. I appreciate my guests, Jason Foster and Matt Snyder, for stopping by. I appreciate you guys for listening and tuning in. As always, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This has been From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley. This has been Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And until next week, so long, everyone. <laughs>